it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. If you're listening to Investing for Beginners, then you probably care about money and learning how to make a good relationship with your finances. Everyone's Talking Money is hosted by money wellness expert and certified financial planner, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money. Hear about the money topics you need to know, such as ways to train your brain to reach money goals, why you should ditch your budget and start tracking your cash, and everything you need to know about paying off student loans. Simple steps to start investing as a side hustle, ways to invest in rental real estate, how to overcome money trauma, and so much more. With over 900 episodes, there's a show for any and every money question you have. I'm a big fan of Shauna's as well. She has a relatable style and soothing voice that takes some of the stress surrounding money. Shauna really speaks to the listener and never ends in an episode without actionable tips. I recently listened to the episode, Stop Stressing Over Your Money, a simple budgeting solution, where she talks about her simple, easy one, two, three system for budgeting. It helped me a lot. Are you ready to learn everything about money that no one has taught you? Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have episode 314. Today, we have two great listener questions. One's a two-parter that we're going to go ahead and answer. Before we dive into those, I wanted to throw this out there. If you are have a burning question that you would love for us to talk about on the podcast, please let us know. We'd love to hear it. We'd love to talk about it. We'd love to help you. If you do have one, the email you could send it to is newsletter at eInvestingforbeginners. Again, that's newsletter at eInvestingforbeginners.com. I will put that in the show notes so you can see it on your phone as well as on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to your podcast. Please, please, if you are driving, driving something heavy, brain surgery, playing golf, air traffic controller, do not stop what you're doing to send us a question. Wait until you're at home. If you're at home, by all means, knock yourself out, send it to us whenever you want. We'd be happy to receive that. Again, newsletter at einvestingforbeginners.com. So with that all behind us, let's go ahead and kind of start answering the question here. So we got a two-parter from Josh. This is a great question. So here we go. Hello, Dave and Andrew. I've been looking into getting into the stock market world for quite a while now. 
I stumbled upon your podcast a few months ago, and it's really given me the belief that I can do it and be successful in it with the knowledge shared by you both. My problem is that I always want to be 100% sure with things before committing. And the more I listen, the more questions I have, and I keep putting off getting started. I'm planning on subscribing to your e-letter portfolio and investing in a couple of your picks just to get started and using your metrics to help make them my own picks. There's just a couple questions I have. So here's the first question. Depending on what country you're from, should you only buy from certain stock exchanges? For example, I'm in the UK, so would it make more sense for me to buy from the London Stock Exchange? Would I get different results to your picks? Would your picks even be in the London Stock Exchange? Starry, my knowledge is very basic. So Andrew, what are your first thoughts on Josh's great question here, number one? Yeah, thanks for writing in, Josh. I appreciate the way you are willing to kind of share that. Hey, I every answer I get, I have more questions. Reminds me of that old TV show Lost. Every time you get an answer, there's three more. <laughs> yeah, seven more questions that they've opened. Yeah. And I know how frustrating that can be. So to a certain extent, that's good because you're being cautious. You're not just throwing it all like you're at the casino. But at the same time, hopefully we can get you to a place where you feel comfortable enough to make progress because you don't learn how to ride a bike by reading about it. You learn how to ride a bike by riding a bike. As far as the different exchanges you could buy at, I only do stock picks that are either on the NASDAQ or the NYSE, New York Stock Exchange. To me, I feel like that's in my wheelhouse. That's I'm a US citizen here. I have you know, full faith in the way those are regulated. And I feel like my rights are protected as a US citizen. For other people, they might feel differently. If it was me, I would try because the context is coming from a place where I'm just gathering information, gathering information, not making progress. I would probably try to find the lowest bar to jump over and jump over that bar. So meaning if it's the easiest way to get started is to do the London Stock Exchange, I would do that. And you know, obviously, I have stock picks. I release those trying to beat the market. That's my big life passion. But that doesn't mean it's right for you particularly if you're only comfortable buying London Stock Exchange stocks and I don't I don't recommend those. So if you're just starting trying to get started and this is a hurdle for you, get rid of the hurdle, make it super easy. Buy whatever comes easiest and then hopefully as you start to make momentum it'll be like dominoes and a lot of your fears can start to go away once you tackle different problems. But if you constantly think about the problems and never actually push against them. I don't know how you can make progress doing that. Yeah, that's great advice. So let me ask you this question. Let's say that Josh is like, okay, the bar is probably easier for me to buy something on London Stock Exchange. He doesn't have to put every penny he owns into that. Like he's right. not. I think some people are afraid because they think when they pull the trigger that they're locked into that forever and whatever choice they make, right or wrong, is going to decide their future result. Right. And it totally isn't. I mean... We try to talk as much as we can about it as much until people get crystallized because they're nodding off. But it really is about the habit. It's not so much about any individual investment you'll make. There are certain principles you want to follow, like don't put all your eggs in one basket, diversify, don't put everything into one stock. But as you apply that and you do it over time, you're building a habit where you're learning how to save more than you... You're learning how to spend less than you make and in that save enough that you can invest it and not have to touch it. And when you 
invest money and don't touch it, you can really get some magical compounding like a snowball the longer and longer you cannot touch it. But that's not easy and it's not taught in school and it's not something that comes natural. And frankly, it's hard because it requires making sacrifices because that dollar that you're investing could be spent a million different ways that would be much more rewarding than just sucking it away and not seeing the instant gratification. So it's hard, but think of it as a habit and that's what's important. Not so much to your point, Dave, not so much that I have to have this money I'm putting in. It needs to be the best performing thing ever and I can't lose money on it. You're missing the forest for the trees. We're trying to run a marathon here and trying to have a perfect sprinting stride. I don't know. I don't do marathons. <laughs> trying to do it perfectly right out of the gates. It's not realistic and it's not how you'll get the results. How you'll get the results is over time with a sustainable investing habit. Amen. That is, in a nutshell, I think the best way to think about trying to step put your toes into the water to start investing and realize that the first company that you buy is not going to make or break you. And most people, including Warren Buffett, probably do not own, still own the first company they've ever invested in. I do. I know Andrew does, but I think that's more rare than common. And a lot of times, the usual advice is to buy something you know. A lot of times, the thing you may know may not always be the best investment. Doesn't mean it's a bad company. Doesn't mean it's a bad product. It just may not be a great investment at that particular time. And so I think a lot of people are afraid that they have to be perfect before they pull the trigger or they have to know everything. You don't. And you're going to learn way more once you get skin in the game and jump into the water than you will thinking about it or reading about it ad nauseum. Because experience is probably the best teacher. And like Andrew said, building the habit is the far more important part of getting started than picking the perfect companies. Because you can overcome making a mistake or six when you start investing. Because it's natural. We don't all pick great companies. I was talking in the last show about my first pick being great and the next two being complete dogs. I mean, literally lost 80 90% for investments. So dogs, bad investments, bad choices, but it didn't stop me. And I think that's what you need to realize is that you're going to make mistakes. It's okay. And even Warren Buffett has a 50, 60% hit rate on investments that he chooses. And Peter Winch said, if you can do a 50, 60% hit rate, that makes you a great investor. So I think we need to understand that even our heroes are not 100% perfect and don't let that prevent you from starting. And like Andrew said at the beginning of this, find out the lowest hurdle that allow you to start picking. And if the London Stock Exchange is the place that you want to go, then do it. And if you live in another part of the country, I'm sorry, the world, and you want to start investing in a local company on their stock exchange, do it. If you're in India, do it. I mean, there's no reason not to. You can always come back and buy from other index at another time. But whatever you need to do to start, start. Don't have time to search the whole stock market. Tired of waiting through endless information? Instead, get my trusted stock picks at valuespotlight.com. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. 
Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. All right, so let's get back to the second part of Josh's great question. So finally, I know you encourage your followers to invest 150 a month into our portfolios. For a beginner, is there any advice on how that should be spread out? For example, when I subscribe and see your monthly pick, should I keep investing 150 into that company until a certain amount and then move on or split it into two different companies and keep doing that for so long? I imagine this is where the diversity comes in. I hope you found time to read through this and have some advice. I'll keep listening to the great podcasts in the meantime. Thank you, Josh. So Andrew, this is another fantastic part to Josh's question. So what are your thoughts on this part? I'm going to make some assumptions here because when I do so, then helps us frame why I'm giving this answer. So the first assumption is you're in the accumulation phase of your investing, not in the harvesting phase of your investing. So you're building up, hence the $150 a month. The other assumption being you have a long time horizon. We're not talking about putting money in and trying to take it out next month or next year, but holding for the long term to let the stock market, let all that volatility ride out so you can have long-term dependable returns. With all of that in mind, if you have that long time horizon, then you don't have to have diversification right off the gate. So... I've talked about in the past when when I was a beginner, something I did was I had a big sum of money and I split it into 10 months because, you know, the magic number 10, because it was a round number and it was easy to remember. Divide by 10. I'd have to do some complex math. 20,000 divided by 10 is 2,000. All right, cool. We're in it. So 
you can do something like that. And, and it was literally just one stock pick every month. So sure, on month one or month two, right at the beginning of the race, I didn't have diversification. I had all that money in one stock, two stocks, three stocks. But since I spread it out over 10 months, by month 10, the first year of maybe a 40-year journey or longer, I had 10% diversification with each stock. So I understand wanting to get diversification and wanting to feel like, oh, I have the best optimal portfolio right now. But when you're in the building stage, you're in the accumulation stage, there's no such thing as a perfect portfolio. You just got to try to find good investments where you can and hold them for the long term. And I look at my portfolio and I'm like, man, I feel like I have too much of this sector in there. I feel like I have not enough of that sector in there. But then I have to remind myself, you know what? I didn't see good opportunities in, let's say, the healthcare sector when I had a lot of capital to invest. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because I can make higher returns the places I did put the capital. So I feel like hopefully that helps alleviate some of the pressure you might be putting on yourself to feel like you have to get everything perfect. You can really cobble this thing together and build a lot of wealth for yourself and do very, very well. I mean, I know emotionally, I'm subject to this just like anybody else. Emotionally, if you put $1,000 into the market and you lose 500 that's going to hurt really badly. But then on the flip side, you'll go buy like a $40,000 car and not think twice. You know, And if you think about it, that's a way worse financial decision than actually saving and investing your money and building mm-hmm. for the long term. So try to frame it in that way if you can and give yourself some grace. So like, look, I'm not going to get it perfect. We all screw up. That's part of the game. Yeah, it totally is. And how would you tell somebody like as they're just starting out, maybe to dig into Josh's question a little bit, I'll give you a couple of hypotheticals. So let's say that you're you just started out and you've maybe done you've picked three different companies. And now you're at month four and you're trying you're struggling to find a good idea. But maybe the first company you picked, I'll just pick a name, Visa. Maybe Visa, the first company you invested in is now dropped in price and you feel like it's a really good value. Would you suggest that they buy that again that soon? Or should they continue in the accumulation phase of trying to just gather a bunch of numbers? Or should they look at what they have and use that as an opportunity to get more of a better company? Understanding that you have time to kind of build out that diversity, I guess. So we're asking if somebody's just starting out and they're literally about to buy their fourth stock. Yeah. I would say probably move on because there might be something about Visa that you're not aware of. Mm. And maybe it's not Visa. Maybe we're talking about like Target or something. Right, yeah. You know, where there's something under the surface and you think it's a really great stock, but you're basically throwing bad money after bad money. As somebody who's three months in, you don't have much experience with picking stocks. That's what I would think. Try to get to your full diversification first and then you can start playing with those ideas. Maybe if you've been investing for five years or something and you can understand, okay, I see a dislocation between how a company like Visa is actually performing and how the market is failing to recognize that, Mm -hmm. then that's maybe a different conversation. But for somebody who's first starting out, I would say... Just try to just get to that full diversification. It'll feel good. It'll feel like an accomplishment. And it is an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And as you gain more experience, you can take advantage of those kind of drawdowns, I think, a lot better and more effectively. All in right. Theory. In theory. In theory. Yeah. In theory. Right. <laughs> Everything's in theory. All right. Let's maybe back up just a bit for maybe people don't, aren't quite following the 
portfolio idea and maybe the diversification idea? Like where at what point, like is there a air quote optimal place that a portfolio should be as far as maybe different companies you own and what qualifies as diversified? At what point would you qualify a portfolio as diversified? That's a great question. It is very subjective. One of the big rules of thumb for stock pickers is a portfolio of 15 to 20 stocks is diversified. And there's academic research suggesting that. That's kind of where that framework comes from is these academic studies. They're looking at beta as a measure of risk. We won't go there. But 15 to 20, that's a, I mean, that's a decent framework. 10 stocks. I like 10 stocks. There's some old, I don't know if it was like in a fable or something, but there was, I thought I remember reading something saying like divided by 10. I've also read divide by eight, divide by seven or even eight. And I think that's a good rule of thumb too. Personally, I've had as much as 30 heard arguments for 100. Some people say 500, just buy the S&P 500 and you can get that diversification. So they're really talking about buying an index fund. Some people, that's not enough. They want to own the whole world. you know. And so just understand the more diversified you get in general, the higher your floor, but the lower your ceiling of returns. And so that's kind of why you might see somebody be more aggressive and have only 10 stocks because they're really trying to get that higher return. But they might also have a lower return than somebody who's doing like 25 or 30 stocks. So it's all... I don't know if there's like an easy answer for it because as you build and you accumulate a portfolio, it can start to look differently. I'll say now I've got a top 10, which I track in Value Spotlight. What are my top 10 positions? And right now they make up about 62% of the portfolio. So you really have 10 stocks driving a lot of the overall performance. Mm -hmm. And I almost look at some of my other stocks that might make up like half a percent or percent. I almost look at them as like my farm system. Like in baseball, they, they have players who are not on the team yet, but they're in minor leagues and the team is watching them. And if the opportunity is there for this minor leaguer, he's going to jump up and get the opportunity to play in the big league. So on a similar token, I might buy something that has a really small position size. And so it's not contributing much. But as I get to learn that company, and then if, if that stock crashes, in theory, I'm able to load up the truck and really make that thing a top 10 mm-hmm. position when it's a really good deal. Yeah, I love that idea of the farm system. That's awesome. I was reading recently that Warren Buffett, his portfolio, his 10, top 10 stocks make up 83% of his returns right now. Wow. Yeah, huge. I mean, Apple's driving like 50%. <laughs> so, right. You know, that's some serious concentration. And Charlie Munger has, he owns four companies. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, I think, the ultimate in, in concentration. I'm not that good. Well, he also has a very big influence in how one of those companies are run, right. being the vice chairman. Yeah. He has kind of has the CEO's ear on that one. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. And he might be on Costco's board of directors. He is, is right? he is on Costco's okay. board of directors. So yeah. So he has their ear too. <laughs> yes, he does. Okay. Yeah. So he, he has some influence on some of those things for sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's but also I, at a different point than a lot of investors. Oh, yeah. Because he's got more money probably than he could spend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Completely different circumstance, completely different situation than vast majority of us. Yeah. What What are your thoughts on um, portfolio construction and have those changed over time? I think they've changed. I think they've morphed a little bit. I think I used to be, you, know, you had to be in the 20, 25 range. And 
I currently own 16, 17 stocks. Yeah, I think 17. And so those, I feel like maybe I get two or three more and then I'm going to be probably good. I think based on, I probably need to get more, I need to get more diversification because I went down the payments rabbit hole a little bit too deeply and got a little bit too much in there. So I need to start to diversify away from that a little bit. And that, that may take me either to sell a position or two or to get some other ones in there to help kind of offset that. But I think I like what you were saying. And I think the ideas of building what you feel comfortable owning and being able to understand what it is you own. As somebody who does this full time, trying to keep track of 16 to 20 companies is a lot. And so, you know, the the idea of doing 50 or 100 is beyond me. I don't know how those people do that. But the, I think once you get to the point of having diversification and you have enough of the asset classes that you can own when you can own them, because kind of like to what you said earlier, you can't just force it. You can't just buy real estate because you have to have it. It should be something you get when it works for your portfolio, not when it's like, I got, okay, I got all the seven slots spilled. I just need this one kind of thing. Right. I'm not a fan of that. But I think trying to build the portfolio to where you feel like you can manage it, you understand the companies, and it provides you enough diversification to make you comfortable at night. I think it's going to kind of range between people, but I think 15 to 20, 25 is probably a good place to be. I know Warren has mentioned several times that you should buy stocks with a punch card and you only get 20 punches. And for life, you only get to buy 20 companies that make you think a lot more about your decisions. But I think the idea of having up to 20 companies, I think is probably a good place, especially for a beginner to work towards getting there, but understanding that it's going to take time and that you need to be patient as you get there. But I like your ideas. And I think the way that you have built your portfolio, I think is a great way to kind of emulate and think about what's going to drive it. And I love that idea of the farm system. I hadn't thought of that before, but I think that's probably a great way to think about it. The companies that are really driving your portfolio, you really need to understand what it is they're doing and then understand who the potential up and comers are that could be to replace. Because the one thing we always have to understand is that I was reading this great paper by Michael Movison this morning and he was talking, it focuses on the lifestyles of businesses and without going into all the nitty gritty of of the paper, the basic gist is that no company is going to stay in a certain life cycle, part of their life cycle. They're all going to evolve. Some may go from starting out to ending really quickly and other ones will go through a more gradual phase, but they all go from beginning to end and no company will last forever. Yeah, there are a few that have been around for 100 years or 150 years in the United States. And I think there's one in Japan that's been around for five or 600 years, but the point is that most of them will go in and out in 20, 30 years or maybe longer depending on the quality of the business. But the point is, is that you have to understand where you are in the life cycle of that business. And like Andrew was saying, the star players at some point will have to retire and you need somebody to kind of come in and take that star player over. 
And by looking at understanding what you own in your portfolio, and maybe company C is only one and a half percent, but it's a growing business with a strong management team that could be called up to the majors at some point. And you could add more money to that part of your portfolio and continue to increase it. Maybe as company A is starting to get into the mature years and they're losing a little bit of zip on the fastball. So I think that's a great way to kind of think about kind of the evolution and the creation of the portfolio. I really like that. Makes me want to watch the wild card. Yeah. Now the real games are going to start. Right. All right. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. So let's move on to the last question. So we got, how do I research a company's past financial information as well as their potential growth once that company decides to go public? Where can I find the metrics? Thank you very much, Brian. So Andrew, what are your thoughts on Brian's question here? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great tools out there you could use. One I've talked about a lot is quickfs.net. They have 10 years of financials right there. You put in the ticker and it shows you potential growth. That's a whole nother discussion. But if you're mm-hmm. strictly looking for past financial information, you could try quickfs.net, finviz.net, which is a website I've talked about since the beginning. They give you a few key metrics that you can use that are based on past financials. And then there's a few others. I know I know you'll probably share those too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the two that I probably use the most... Well, I got three that I use the most. Uh, the first one is stratosphere.io. Our friend Braden created this fantastic website that has 20 plus years of financials on there. All the metrics you can want, KPIs, it's a great website and it's a really great place to research the past financial information over a longer period of time, which is really what you want to do. The other website I would suggest would be bamsec.com. That's a great place to look at the actual company financials. So the 10K, the 10Q, proxies, earnings reports, all that stuff is all right there at BAMSEC. And although when you look at Visa's current 10K, you may not be able to see 10 years, you can see three years, the income statement, the cash flow statement, and only two of the balance sheet. But those are the actual numbers. It's not from a website. So it is the true source data and it is essential reading if you're going to learn more about Visa. So I think that's a great place to start. And the other one that I've kind of started to kind of embrace too is quarter.com. They're a great website to help you learn more about the earnings calls, but they've also been kind of branching into all the other calls that you can do with the companies as well. So from the investor calls to the company, they go out and do roadshows, if you will, and talk to investors at different conferences and whatnot. And they have all those recordings as well. And they have some great charts as well. So it's a great place to kind of really dig into what management has to say about the company. It's not necessarily related to the financial information per se, but it can certainly give you a lot of great insights into why Tesla is doing as well or poor as everybody thinks it should. Yeah. I love Quarter. I'm on there so much. Mm -hmm. They have a fantastic app and you just type in the company and you got the earnings call and you plug that in and go on the drive and you're mm-hmm. getting download to so much information. So I know they're Q-U-A-R-T-R.com. Mm-hmm. I also use BAMSEC like every day. And, you know, Brain Stratosphere, he actually has that 10, top 10 holdings when you look at the different super investor portfolios mm-hmm. that he has on his website. That's a really cool way to see kind of fact check what you and I are saying, right? Like, right. Oh, really? Does Buffett really have 10% of his holdings as so much of his portfolio bet? Mm-hmm. And you can look and Brain's website shows you the top 10 concentration. 
I think a lot of the the big investors have pretty high concentration there. Top yeah, ten for sure. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think those are all fantastic places, and they can definitely get you started down the path of what you need to do. They all have paid tiers, but they also have some free tiers, free tiers as well to help you get started to get your feet wet and see if these are things that can be helpful for you. They all have the metrics that you want: return on invested capital, return on equity, PE ratios price to free cash flow, debt to equity, all that fun stuff. Yeah. I think if you like to look at charts, I think there's nothing like stratosphere. I no. mean, you could just you click on the metric and it that the way that it's so easy to manipulate that to, mm-hmm. to show you a chart, you mm-hmm. can quickly visualize things. Right. Yeah. It very very quickly. And it, one of the little things that I like about it is that the it not only shows you it in a graph form so you can kind of visualize it, but they also calculate the CAGR. So you can see yeah. what kind of return, you know, the revenue has gotten, for example, or what kind of return the earnings have had or anything. So, and you can kind of layer all those things on top of each other so you can see kind of the impacts of revenue to operating income to net income to free cash flow. And you can kind of see how those have all grown and you can see you can overlap it. So it's very visual. And for someone who's a visual learner like myself, it's very helpful to see like, oh, that's really great or ooh, that's really bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> what about the whole potential growth idea? That's its yep. own can of worms. Yeah, that really is. I think you know, with the the website information, like how do you research that? I think the way that you have to, there's a lot of different ways you can go with the potential growth. I think the probably the first place that I would want to start would be to Think about what the industry is, the company is in and what management is saying about their potential and what the triggers are for that potential. And I think if you can understand those or at least have a a grasp on those, then I think you can go and try to project potentially what those are based on a few simple metrics. What are your thoughts? I agree. Can you give us an example? Sure. So I think if you are going to look at Visa, for example, if you're going to try to determine what kind of growth can the company expect going forward, you would have to listen to, you'd have to know what the company does, understand their business and their business model. And then you would have to listen to the management talk on an earnings call on quarter, for example, would be a great place to start and focus on what are the things that they're talking about the most. They have, most earning calls have two sections. They have a prepared section and then they have an analyst section. The prepared section is where management gets to talk about what they want to talk about. And then the Q&A is where analysts get to ask them all kinds of sometimes really great questions, sometimes really dumb questions. But they will talk about most of the time, those things will focus on the things that they find important. So for Visa, things that they'll find important are users spending on their card, like how many times are the cards being used? Something like cross-border payments, which means when they're using the payment outside of their home country. So if they're an American and they're in Europe and they're spending on their trip to Italy, for example, which is where apparently everybody went last year, if you did that, then that income that they see is higher than it is if they spend it here in the United States. And so that money, that's a big growth driver for Visa. And the other thing would be a newer product that they just rolled out called Visa Direct. And if you understand that those are maybe the three triggers for the business, then you could analyze looking at the growth rate of cross-border payments, 
look at the growth rate of what the company is seeing as far as people, more people using their cards, and then looking at the growth rate for Visa Direct. And then you could kind of use that to t- try to project what you think that's going to happen next year or five years from now. Understanding that these are only projections and it's only based on what you think is going to be the best possible growth and you have a high likelihood of being wrong. So then it's just a matter of trying to determine what do you think those growth rates are and then looking at their past and kind of projecting that forward. So if their cross-border payments have been growing at, let's say, just an easy number, 15%, and you think that, and the company, and you think that that's going to continue, then you could project that that part of the business would grow 15% next year or maybe over the next five years. And it's kind of the same with user cards. If they've been growing that at 12%, then projecting 12 to 14%, if you think that's going to grow and the company says it's going to grow, then I think gradually booking that up, I think would be appropriate or at least not crazy. And kind of the same with the Visa Direct is that's a faster growing segment. So applying a faster growth rate to that would probably be logical understanding that that could be also the most volatile of the three and because it doesn't have as long a history and is again, just a projection and there's no guarantee that they may have hit a wall. You know, maybe they've saturated their market now and the 30% they saw last year is not what they're going to see going forward. But those are things you'll see as time goes by. So does that help answer the question? Yeah. I really like what you added there at the end is a question you can ask is, are they saturating their market? You take a big company, not to pick on Amazon, but I feel like they're the one of the most obvious examples. Are they going to grow sales at 20% a year for the next 10 years? And I think we've shown that if you do that, you're eventually going to be bigger than the world's GDP. Mm-hmm. You know, Just because they already are at such a high number, 20% on top of 300 million, the numbers start getting ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So to the whole Visa direct thing, if you can somehow get an estimate of what that market is and see, okay, could they grow at 30% or is there an obvious, is there an obvious physical constraint to that? I think could be very, very valuable to somebody who's trying to project because it, it does get you. I feel like it keeps you away from some of the cardinal sins that you can make when you're trying to look at the past and try to project the future. Yep, for sure. I think one of the things that I think about with this is, Think about what is the potential opportunity. I, I hate that word TAM because it gets abused. But if you think about what the potential could be for a particular company, and then you think about, okay, what are the revenues that the company is generating now? And you can kind of see, okay, how big of a a potential opportunity could that be? And if the company is generating $25 billion in revenue, but the the overall market is you know $200 billion, then the company is obviously a much smaller piece of that pie. And if they are taking market share from other companies, then you could reasonably expect that that maybe could continue for a certain while. It won't continue forever because other competitors are going to come in and try to undercut and do other things to try to take market share for them. So it's it's definitely a complex system and it's definitely a moving target. But I think when you're thinking about projecting any sort of potential growth, you have to take some of that into consideration, understanding that it's going to be fluid and understanding that it is not an exact science. And if you're looking for an exact number, you're barking up the wrong tree because it doesn't exist. No, it doesn't. I mean, we are talking about the future after all. 
Right. None of us know the future. My crystal ball is very hazy and a lot of crack. Because you mentioned the the loaded word, Tam, I would just caution if you are going to go that way, try to make the estimate yourself instead of relying on what management will say, especially if they're on a roadshow and they're trying to get investors (laughs) and they get paid to get investors to buy their stock. Yep. So one way I tried to do this with a company called Texas Roadhouse, they have steakhouses was I wanted to see, okay, I have a certain number. I think they're going to grow their units. And is that a reasonable TAM? So rather than listen to what an analyst or management might say, I looked at what's another similar company to this. There's Outback. In 2012, they had 771 restaurants. So if I make my number of units estimate for Texas Roadhouse, that someday they'll get to 770-ish units, what's the growth rate on that over the next 10 years? And am I estimating that to be too high a growth rate that you know I'm estimating that there are 2,000 restaurants when that would be an excessive amount of steakhouses? You know, you could do I did something similar with Costco too, or you know, they're doing expansion internationally. So they have a certain number of warehouses they might have per number of people in a town. Is there population to expand to in some of the countries that they're going into? Are there big cities there? And if that's the case, what's the growth rate on that? So you can really get into the weeds on some of this stuff. But I think the more of that work you can do and kind of flesh out and see those facts that you came up with yourself and you didn't rely on somebody else for, I think it can help with with feeling confident about Am I buying this investment with a margin of safety? Yes, that is a great, great way to think about trying to project a potential growth rate for a company and using that kind of logic and reasoning and idea, I think is a great way to really protect yourself. And I just want to throw this out there. Andrew mentioned the whole roadshow. When Uber was going public, they told the world that their potential market that they could serve at some point in the future was the whole world. And so that was a little extreme and that is certainly not playing out to be the case. And so I'm not saying that Uber is a bad company or a bad investment. I use their product all the time, but you know, the point is, is that management tends to be a little exaggerative sometimes. So you need to make sure you rein in the enthusiasm, especially when you're doing this kind of work. And I think the the depth of knowledge that Andrew was just kind of weighing on you and how to go about doing that, that's the way you should do it. That should be the guidepost of how to do this. Sweet. All right, everyone. Well, that will wrap up our show for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your preferred podcast app if you enjoyed our little show. If you would, kindly consider giving us a five-star review. It greatly helps our show. And don't forget to browse the incredible materials we've created for einvestingforbeginners.com. Lastly, continue growing your knowledge as an Investing for Beginners insider with insights and educational tips delivered right to your inbox for free. Sign up today. And with that, we'll go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day.
The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.